0: Last time on Damages, we went to Ecuador, the first country to add rights of nature to its constitution.
1: You know, it's, it's, it's quite unique in the world. Uh, the constitution in Ecuador has this acknowledgement that nature has rights, something
0: that doesn't exist in other constitutions. This week, we head to one of the first countries to post big rights of nature wins, New Zealand. They've granted legal personhood to both rivers and land. And New Zealand's often pointed to as sort of a beacon of hope in the rights of nature universe. The place that's figured it all out. But there's a bit more to it. Our reporter, Lyndall Rollins, brings us that story now. spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold, so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to airdoctorpro.com. Use the promo code DROMD. This holiday season, get a gift. and it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, four zero, 40 percent Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com dot com slash drilled.
2: These chaotic sounds. Horses, fires and shouting are from a performance art piece welcoming a group of judges to the small town of Ruotuki on New Zealand's North Island back in 2005. In order to understand exactly what's happening here, you have to know some backstory. First, Ruotuki is a town in northern New Zealand in the homelands of a Maori tribe called Tuhoi. Back in the 1840s, when New Zealand was being colonised, Maori chiefs entered into a treaty with Queen Victoria called the Waitangi Treaty. It was supposed to recognise Maori ownership of land and resources while New Zealand was being formally established as a British colony. The problem was the government, which is called the Crown in New Zealand, broke the treaty almost immediately. They started finding ways to cheat or sometimes outright steal land from Maori. Fast forward 100 years to the 1970s. That's when the government finally makes an attempt to acknowledge what happened all those years ago and how the actions of the Crown still affect Maori today. They created something called the Waitangi Tribunal. is designed to hear and address claims from the tribes like Tuhoe, who were wronged during colonisation. When the Waitangi Tribunal came to Ruituki to hear testimony from Tuhoe, a local elder, artist and activist Tami Iti was tasked with organising the welcome ceremony. And what he put together was a historical reenactment of sorts, that performance art piece you heard before. It was held at a spot in the road where there's a painted white line. That line is known as the confiscation line. And since the 1860s, it has divided Tuhoi land from the land the crown took from them.
3: They had to come in on horse carriage, as is kind of uh, the romantic view of the settler period.
2: This is Tuhoe negotiator Tamati Kruger.
3: And as they travelled down the road towards the confiscation line, uh, there was an array of demolished, crashed vehicles and they were on fire with lots and lots of black smoke.
2: The judges coming in had to get out of their cars at the confiscation line. And to get through, they either had to walk or ride in horse-drawn carriages the rest of the way into town, passing by burning cars and lots of black smoke. The idea for this ceremony, this performance, was to give the judges some sense of just how terrifying colonisation had been for Tu And by all accounts, it worked.
3: It's very confrontational for the tribunal. Uh, so so much so that when we met later on that afternoon, Judge uh, Savage did share with us that uh, a couple of members of the tribunal feared for their lives.
2: This is a clip from the documentary The Price of Peace. In it, Tuhoi negotiator ta Kruger is being questioned by Tami lawyer a few years after Iti's spectacle had welcomed the tribunal to town.
3: That was the process. Worked that fear through, did it? Uh, it was explained to Judge Savage that so it was for two people in 1965.
2: ET led the demonstration in a long green kilt and black beret. He was shirtless, so you could see his ta moko, the spiritual tattoos that adorn his face and torso, and he had a rifle casually slung over his shoulder. Reports about the tribunal and Tama Eti's welcoming ceremony made news around the country, and Parliament was up in arms. They said Iti should have been arrested. The charge, it was all part of the performance, carrying an unlicensed firearm and shooting at a flag. Police began surveilling Tame Iti and other activists, claiming that Tuhoi were raising a militia and running a terrorist training camp. On October 15, 2007, about 300 police descended on the small town of Ruotoki. The town only had a population of about 600 people, mostly Tuhoi. It was two years after Tama'iti had organised that welcome for the Waitangi tribunal to Tuki. On the day of the raids, the police set up their line on the same piece of road where the ceremony took place, right along the confiscation line that had been drawn over a century earlier. Annette Sykes, a Māori barrister, represented many of the people arrested in the raids.
1: And I managed to get all of the ones that I kept um, to be found uh, not guilty. So one of the women I represented, she's a jeweller, and she goes around, she's a conservationist, she goes into the forest and picks up bullets that, um, you know, hunters and gatherers put in, and she makes them into jewellery. She was arrested because she was in possession of bullets without an explanation. And they broke her arm when they arrested her. And she was a lovely young woman. And I don't know if she ever recovered from it, but you know, that's that was the ridiculousness of some of them. The leaders, they were put into Mount Eden prison, which is one of the more difficult of our um, correction facilities.
2: It wasn't a coincidence that the police raids happened while Tūhoe were in negotiations with the Crown. Many of the people that were arrested
1: were leaders or the claimants, people that were bringing the claim born on behalf of their
2: people. In the end, out of the 18 people arrested, just four went to trial in 2012. They became known as the Urawera Four. Tameiti was one of the Urawera Four who stood trial. Here's another clip from The Price of Peace where Tame Iti is preparing for court during his trial.
4: I, I know it's going to be a, a big fight, a big battle. Like the uh, court uh, will say, Let the law deal with the law.
2: Here, Iti quotes Māori leader Te Let the law deal with the law.
4: So uh, we participate in the show, the theatre.
2: The cameras follow Etie as he walks from the hotel to the court, and almost immediately, someone walking past shakes his hand.
4: Morning, Morning. Uh, they uh, wish you luck. So we need more than luck.
2: A little further down the road, a group of construction workers wish him good luck today. Although a jury cleared the Uruwera four of more serious charges, including of belonging to an organised criminal group the judge sentenced Tameiti to two and a half years for possession of firearms. Throughout the trial and in response to Iti's sentencing, there were growing protests over how the Crown had handled things. The raids had been excessive and in the lead up to them, police had spied on Tu for months, but they never actually found evidence to back up the initial terrorism claims. It all seemed like an overreaction to that ceremony back in 2005. That international attention actually pushed the Crown back to the negotiating table with Tu with some surprising results. That story coming up after the break. I'm Lyndall Rollins, and this is Damages. Tuhoi had many claims to the Waitangi Tribunal, but one claim in particular was considered non-negotiable. The return of their homeland, Te Uruwera, which for Tuhoi is not just a special place, but an ancestor.
1: Okay, so there was an elder who I used to see at jail.
2: Here's Annette Sykes again. Before the raids, she'd worked on Tuhoi legal claims for decades.
1: One of the key witnesses for me, he described it in our language, as Tuhoi is my mother and my father. It's where I grew up, it's where I go to pray, it's where I go to um, partake of food that nourishes me and my future generations. So for you to suggest that you can own my mother and my father is completely antithetical to our ideology or our relationships to that environment.
2: The forested mountains of Te Uruera were part of the land the Crown had confiscated from Tūhoe.
4: Tūhoi spent the 20th century essentially locked out of involvement in their own homeland.
2: This is Chris Finlayson, the former Attorney-General of New Zealand.
4: The promises made in the Uruwera District Native Reserve Act 1896 were never kept. That Act was never honoured and eventually repealed without any input from Ngai Tuhui. Then in 1954, the Crown made a unilateral declaration that Te Uruwera was to become a national park.
2: But for Tuhoi and their ancestor Te Uruwera, things weren't right. Trees weren't growing as tall as they used to. and Lake Waikaremoana, the jewel of Te Uruwera, was polluted with rusted cars and trash. Almost 85% of Tuhoi no longer lived in their ancestral homelands and they were losing their close connection with Te Uruwera. The tribunal held hearings where Tuhoi shared their testimonies, but in 2010 negotiations reached an impasse. The Prime Minister of New Zealand at the time, John Keyes, said that Te Uruwera would not be included in the settlement with the Tuhoi people. At the same time that the tribunal was considering Tuhoi claims, another trial was taking place in New Zealand's High Court. The trial of the Uruwera Four brought international attention to the Tuhoi cause and to E.T., he was released eight months into his sentence and went home in February 2013.
4: The last stretch is about five miles or 10 kilometres.
2: This is from the documentary, Price of Peace Again. Tami Iti is being driven home on the morning he was released from prison.
4: And used to be the road between Taneatua and uh, Ruatukis was been the road of white supremacy mentality because that's all confiscation land, but not anymore.
2: The year after Tameiti was released, police returned to Ruotoki. This time they were there to apologise to Eti and the community for the harm caused by the 2007 raids. Media organisations have also apologised to E.T. for the way they reported on the Crown's narrative, that the Urawera Four were terrorists. But these weren't the only apologies that were made in 2014.
4: Today, sir, we begin to remedy that history. Te Uruwera will no longer be a national park. Instead, it will have its own legal identity. It reflects a tuhoi view of Te Uruwera as having an identity in its own right, not as a mere possession, but a treasured place that requires respect and careful stewardship.
2: The Crown finally agreed to give up its control of Te Uruwera. It wasn't quite land back, but it was a big step forward. The Crown's redress to Tuhoi also included extensive apologies for more than 100 years of harm. The Te Uruwera Act was one of the first laws in the world based on the rights of nature, and it grants legal rights to the homelands of the Tuhoi,
5: Te Urawera is ancient and enduring. It is alive with history. It is abundant with scenery. It has its own spirituality. It is, has its own authority. It has its own life force. And for Tūhoe, the people who come from Te Urawera, who know Te Urawera best, for Tuhoi, Te Urawera is the heart of that great fish that Maui had caught. This is Māori law professor Jacinta
2: Ruru. She's not reciting a poem or reading from an essay. She's reading the text of the Te Uruwera Act of 2014 at a TEDx event. Professor Ruru describes the Te Uruwera Act as one of the most beautiful pieces of legal writing
5: you'll ever come across. And so while I do not routinely encourage the reading of legislation for joy, (laughs) this is perhaps one exception.
2: As Professor Ruru explains, In Aotearoa, as New Zealand is known to Māori, legal personality is about more than protecting nature.
5: So we've used legal personality here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to do something more, and that is to recognise and to reconnect with an Indigenous worldview of this place. And it is incredible that it has been born from the heartache and struggle to create these opportunities to disrupt the racism in our society. So
2: how did Tu Hui convince the Crown to agree to this settlement?
3: I think when we crossed over um, the, I think, the psychological barrier of not viewing Tu as property, the whole obstacle of ownership disappeared.
2: This is Tamati Kruger, talking about the Te Uruwera negotiations on Radio New Zealand. The idea that Te Uruwera would belong to itself rather than to Tuhoi, it's a Tuhoi idea. But it's also made the Crown feel less uncomfortable about Tuhoi claiming their land back. And in the aftermath of all the protests, it gave the Crown an out without reversing their position entirely.
3: And so what now seems like overnight, the Crown agreed to give up its 100% ownership and governance of a national park. Why? Because we were no longer talking about ownership. See, that's how, that's how easy it was. Uh, you, 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 you take ownership and you throw it out. And when you say the land owns itself, uh, well, what is your disagreement with that? So if the land owns itself, then the land owns the water, land owns the minerals, land owns the trees, the birds, the uh, fauna and the airspace.
2: It's been over seven years since Te Uruera was returned to itself and to the care of Tuhoi. Since that transition, Tuhoi have introduced a new management plan. Unlike the Department of Conservation's approach to the land, the Tuhoi approach is to manage the way people use the land instead of managing the land itself. Tamati Kruger is now the chair of the Te Uruera board. Here he is explaining to me that for Tuhoi, caring for nature is about responsibilities, not rights.
3: We don't think describing it as rights is helpful in in our situation. Uh, Two we believe that they are born with responsibilities, not rights. Uh, We are are born into a family that involves the environment, that involves nature. In our creation stories, uh, there is no space no regard for ownership, entitlement, or rights. Uh, Where we are born uh, as part of nature, it is our point of origin and our point of return. So uh, as two Hui people, we accept that we have obligations and responsibilities, not only to ourselves, but to how we live, where we live. And, and that it is, it is our duty in order for us to progress and advance as human beings, we must know our place in nature. So we don't see that our struggle is a struggle of rights. It's rather a struggle to restore our sense of responsibility to ourselves and to nature. We don't own Te Uda us we don't own this land, but we live with it.
2: It hasn't been an easy process with Tuhoe balancing the need for Te Uruera to recover with calls for increasing access to the region. The Act stipulates that there should be a management board of humans made up of six Tuhoe representatives and three Crown representatives. So it's not quite the same as Tuhoe having their land back. And there are still some disagreements to be worked out, like whether or not the roads should be paved.
1: You know, I think I want to say, I'd love to say that um, once we did the case, colonisation got put on the plane back to United Kingdom. It didn't. In fact, there was a new form of colonisation that is being reeled against and that it was control of their mother and their father, the universe. That's how it was described to me, you know, and... Um, and they live within the universe. Their whole patterns of life, ways of life, are are assumed to try and have minimal effect on their universe.
0: Wow, Lyndall, this is such an incredible story and there's so much more to it than I originally thought. I'm so glad that you dug into it for us. And also really glad you had me watch that documentary, The Price of Peace, about the police raids.
2: I know, it's such a beautiful documentary. And I really recommend that anyone listening to this also have a watch of the documentary too.
0: As an American who's not used to seeing government officials apologize for anything ever, I was also really struck by the apologies. It's, uh it's just say not something we see much of in this country. <laughs> but there are all these scenes in the film where politicians and even the police who conducted those raids come and personally apologize and sit and actually listen to them. It's pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, these are some really moving scenes, especially the hackers from the Chuhui. <laughs>
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they're amazing. I had chills every time one was on screen. I think it's really important to note, though, as you did, that this is not necessarily the end result to Hoi We're After, right?
2: Yeah, I think that maybe for a lot of people outside of New Zealand, we might sort of think of this act as being this total victory. But um, here's what Annette Sykes had to say about that.
1: Can I say they see this as a step along the way too, as one of the lawyers. I don't think where they've landed is quite where they want to be, but it's uh, uh, the fact that they've ended up in a relationship with the Crown, which gives them co-governance and co-authority, co-management and the ability to design restrictions and limits within what their ecological vision of that part of the world is Is certainly a better truth for them than when we started this in the uh, middle of the 1990s.
0: That's super interesting. So, in the case of Tuhoi in New Zealand, this is really kind of a step on the path to land back. Exactly. Okay, that's it. For this time, next week, we'll head back to the U.S. and wrap up the series, Where We Began, in the Midwest. That whole idea of, you know, no one's coming to save you. This is going to be up to us. It's going to be the people in the communities that are directly impacted by all these environmental issues and harms that are going to have to stand together. Damages is an original Critical Frequency production. This episode was written and reported by Lyndall Rollins. Our editor and senior producer is Sarah Ventry. Sound design by Ray Pang. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. Our fact checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Artwork for the show is drawn by Matt Fleming. Our theme song this season is Bird in the Hand by Fornone. Big thanks to Journeyman Productions for licensing clips from the documentary, Price of Peace. We'll include information on where to find and watch the film in the show notes. Archival in this episode is also thanks to TED and Radio New Zealand. If you like the show, please remember to rate and review it wherever you're listening and share it with your friends. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.